0: From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned.
1: I'm Preet Bharara. We are a very polarized nation right now, such that if there were another 9-11, I have doubt that we could marshal a national response like we did 20 years ago. And for proof of that, you don't need to look any further than covid
0: That's Jay Johnson. He served as the Secretary of Homeland Security during President Obama's second term. Longtime listeners of Stay Tuned will be familiar with Secretary Johnson. He joined me in April of 2018 to discuss his career in public service, which began at SDNY and later included serving as the top lawyer at both the Air Force and the Department of Defense. This week, as we approach the 20th anniversary of 9-11, Johnson returned to the program to discuss his memories of that day and how it changed the country forever. That's coming up. Stay tuned.
2: Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need— including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause.
3: Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast.
0: There's exciting news from CAFE. We've launched our new podcast, Up Against the Mob, hosted by Ellie Honig. You can subscribe for free and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Search for Up Against the Mob. And now, on to your questions. This question comes in a tweet from Maureen, who asks, If anyone aids a Texas woman to get her abortion outside of Texas, is that person-slash-agency able to be sued under this new law, I've heard differing opinions. Well, thanks for your question, Maureen. Joyce Vance and I discussed for an entire hour the nature, context, and implications of the Texas abortion law SB8 on the Cafe Insider this week. But this thing that you have asked about actually didn't come up. It's an unusual statute in many ways, as we discussed, and as I'm sure you've heard about and read about. But my view is that so long as the actual abortion itself, conducted by a doctor, is outside of the state of Texas, That there can't be good faith liability, criminal or otherwise, and in this case it would only be civil under the Texas statute, for someone who may have engaged in some conduct to assist inside of Texas. So in other words, I guess your question is, if someone inside of Texas offered a ride to Oklahoma, and we've seen an uptick in interest at Oklahoma abortion providers, if someone did that, could they be sued appropriately under the Texas statute? Well, I guess they could be. Anyone can sue for anything. And then you work out whether or not that claim should be dismissed. But I don't think such a claim would succeed. Because ultimately, the main conduct that is prohibited is the abortion. And as far as I understand criminal law, and this is, again, not criminal law, but civil law, but the analog should be the same, that if the actual conduct is not unlawful, namely seeking and obtaining an abortion in Oklahoma, for example, then the aiding and abetting of that conduct can itself cause you to be liable. I think that's the only common sense reading of the statute. I understand that there are some people who differ with that, including very smart, legendary, Harvard Law professor Lawrence Tribe, who writes in a piece in The Guardian, his view, even someone who helps a woman organize money for a plane or a bus ticket could be liable for aiding and abetting a now-banned abortion, even if the procedure itself takes place out of Texas. I think his view is that an aggressive litigant in Texas could take that position, and he's probably right about that, and maybe some people will take that position. I think it ultimately fails, and I think the, the weight of expert opinion on that is that it fails. This question comes in a tweet from listener A. Muntianu. Sorry if I mispronounced the name. This person asks, Regarding Elizabeth Holmes being tried for wire fraud, I find the term wire fraud confounding. Say you lie to investors and get them to give you money under false pretenses. Had these investors given the money to Theranos in cash, literally, would it not have been wire fraud and illegal? Well, that's an interesting question. And wire fraud is confounding. It's a broad statute under the federal system, Title 18 United States Code, Section 1343, it's a broad anti-fraud statute in the same way that the feds often rely on a parallel statute called the mail fraud statute. And what they essentially prohibit are schemes and artifices to defraud. They can be an investment fraud, a Medicaid fraud, you name it, any kind of false devices and schemes to defraud can be prosecuted ordinarily by the state. And so wires are not necessary or mailings are not necessary. But for federal prosecutors to bring a case as they did with Elizabeth Holmes, They have to prove something called a wire if you use that statute. Now, by way of background, most of you have probably heard of the Elizabeth Holmes case. She was the founder of a company called Theranos, gotten a lot of attention. She was the subject of a book called Bad Blood, multiple documentaries, other podcasts as well. She's alleged to have defrauded to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars, both investors in her company and also patients based on what is alleged to be false representations about her blood testing technology. So it's captured a lot of people's attention. The trial is underway as we speak in the Northern District of California in San Francisco. And some of the main charges, as the listener has asked, relate to wire fraud. Now, wire doesn't necessarily mean just money. And while it is the case that in the indictment against Elizabeth Holmes, various counts enumerated relate to the payment of investor money that's sent by wire. But wires also include under the federal statute any kind of electronic communication that can include an email, an email, That can include a phone call, that can include a text message, that can include radio ads, and that's contained in the statute itself. And in fact, the third superseding indictment that is operative against Elizabeth Holmes has a number of counts that don't relate to the payment of money. The wire at issue in count nine, for example, is a phone call from a patient. The wires at issue in counts 10 and 11 of the indictment relate to the conveyance of patient lab results. So all of that can be part of the fraud, and it doesn't necessarily have to be money. And by the way, as I said at the beginning, if you have a case of fraud that literally didn't involve any email, any phone call, any text, any wire transfer of funds in an interstate way, then that fraud should presumably be prosecutable under state law. So you don't get away scot-free. In this case, the appropriate prosecuting entity is the Department of Justice. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail, and they then pass those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get 3 months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text
2: plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new 3-month unlimited
0: wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com/preet. That's mintmobile.com/preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com/preet. upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed
2: slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web.
0: My guest this week is former Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson. On the eve of the 20th anniversary of 9-11, Johnson joins me to discuss what it was like to be in New York City during the attacks, how the country responded, and whether we are safer today.
1: Secretary Jay Johnson, welcome back to the show. Great, thanks for having me back. I enjoyed our prior discussion on your podcast. I'm looking forward to the discussion today.
0: If you can believe it. That was over three years ago.
1: So you've you got to be less of a stranger. I can't believe it. But people today still tell me, hey, I heard you on Prepar's podcast. So you, your reach is really impressive. It's far and wide. It's global.
0: It's uh, throughout the solar system. So thanks for doing this again. <laughs> so just for, for folks uh, to be oriented, you and I are recording not together, but remotely as is often the case. Yes. On Tuesday, September 7th, And I thought that that given the the looming 20th anniversary of 9-11, that there was really no more perfect guest than you, for a lot of reasons, because of the positions you've held. You were an AUSA in the Southern District of New York. You were the General Counsel of the Department of Defense. You were, of course, the Secretary of Homeland Security. You have served in a leadership role at the 9-11 Museum. And on top of all those things, you're just a thoughtful American citizen. There's lots of stuff to talk about. I guess my first question, this may seem like an odd question, is, at least for me, my experience has been in the last few days sort of a a building feeling of heaviness about the upcoming anniversary. I felt the same way in the lead up to the 10th anniversary. And lots of people are writing about their reflections, they're writing about that day, their TV shows about 9-11, lots of them proliferating. Are you reading all of those and watching all of those? Are you avoiding them? Um, I'm wondering what the psychology of of people is. I, I found myself avoiding it until closer in time. And I've been reading it because, because you kind of know that when you, when you begin a sober reflection and reading some of these thoughtful pieces and remembrances,
1: your heart's going to be very heavy. How do you think right. about that? Uh, that's a good question. To be honest, I, I haven't immersed myself yet in 9-11 retrospectives but I'm sure I will as the day draws closer and it's drawing close now. Any retrospective of 9-11 should include a retrospective of the last 20 years and the reaction to 9-11. And that could be a book, that could be a chronicle of books, that could be an op-ed, it could be many, many things about some of the lessons learned, some of the places where we've perhaps overreached Uh, And hopefully we've learned from those lessons. And of course, the heroism on that day, 9-11. So some of it you and I personally experienced and lived through in response to 9-11. And some of it is our very clear clear recollections of 9-11 20 years ago.
0: So let's go back to to the day, September 11, 2001. Many people may not realize you wake up that morning and it's your birthday. Yes, it is. 9-11 9-11 is your birthday, and I presume- Has been all my life, yeah. Has been all you know, that doesn't change. Even in a leap year, 9-11 is your birthday. Right. I, I presume you got some good birthday wishes, you woke up in a good mood.
1: Well, I'm going to start with the last piece of the thought train here, which is as a result of the fact that 9-11 is my birthday, everybody remembers my birthday. And <laughs> I get lots of emails and well wishes on 9 9 9 11, and it's usually the same 40 or 50 people who never forget that 9 11 is my birthday. But I remember the day like it was 20 days ago, not 20 years ago. I woke up that morning at my home in Montclair, New Jersey, where we still live. I had spent two years as general counsel of the Department of the Air Force in the last two years of the Clinton administration. And we came back to our home in Montclair, New Jersey in January, 2001. And I had come back to my law firm, Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton & Garrison, the very firm that I belong to now. In fact, I'm sitting in my law office at 1285 Avenue of the Americas, just where I was on 9-11-2001. I decided to drive to work that day. I typically then would take the bus. And I decided to drive to work that day and park at a garage on 8th Avenue and 53rd Street. It's now demolished. It's gone. Something else is there at its place. And I was going to come home and spend a quiet evening over dinner with my wife and two kids. My kids were a lot younger then. They were about um, seven and eight years old. And I remember it was a beautiful, crisp, early fall, late summer day. Sky was, pre, I'm sure you remember it too. Not a cloud sky in the sky. was not a, not a cloud in the sky, no humidity, 70s. It was a gorgeous, gorgeous day. I drove in, I parked my car, came to work, and I was sitting at my desk in my office and I was working on a boring court paper that I was trying to get done that morning Because I had a meeting downtown in the New York State Attorney General's office later that morning. And at 8.48, I heard someone say, an airplane just hit the World Trade Center. I walked next door to the office of my law partner, Theodore Sorensen, who was JFK's speechwriter. Ted was not in that day, but Ted's office was a corner office. He had a clear view looking down 6th Avenue at the Twin Towers, and I looked out the window in his office, and I saw this black smoke billowing out of one of the two towers. I'll never forget the contrast of that dark black smoke against the backdrop of that beautiful blue sky. And I think I actually saw the second airplane hit the tower. I was going back and forth between watching it on TV in a conference room and watching it with my naked eye, and I think I may have seen the second plane hit. And the moment that I will never forget of the many memorable moments that morning, sitting there watching events unfold, was when the first tower collapsed. For 30 years, the World Trade Center had been a fixture on the New York City skyscraper. I used to go to windows on the world all the time. I took my son in 1994, when he was just a couple weeks old, up to the observation deck. And to see that building, which was a permanent fixture on our landscape, collapse in an instant was a moment when my brain could not believe what my eyes were seeing. And I kept wanting to see that tower emerge from the dust and the smoke. But it didn't were you were you shocked
0: by how quickly the tower fell? My, my experience was similar yes. to yours absolutely. I had not yet gotten to work, and I lived at the time uh, off of Park Avenue and twenty second street and I'm watching what I'm seeing on the television. I didn't have a vantage point from within my apartment, but I walked out of the of the apartment building and walked over to Fifth Avenue, had a clear line of vision and saw the towers burning and couldn't believe it, and not many people speculated at least on the TV program that I was watching, that, that the
1: towers could fall or they would fall within minutes. Correct. Right. Not, it, I, I cannot think of any similar large structure, large permanent structure that could collapse in an instant like that. Never before seen that happen and couldn't believe it was happening at that moment. But then it happened again. It happened twice. And then it happened again. Uh, A few minutes later, my first instinct uh, when I watched all this unfold, our nation was going to war, was I got to do something. What can I do to help? And it, frankly, it gnawed at me that I was not back at my desk at the Pentagon where I was eight months before. The job of general counsel of the Department of the Air Force at that moment was still vacant. There was an acting in the role and I was not there. I was not at the Pentagon where I felt like I should be at that moment. And so the overwhelming instinct was do something. So I went down to the street and I was looking for the nearest hospital where I could donate blood. And given the nature of the tragedy, there was not a whole lot of need for blood donations. You either escaped the World Trade Center or or you were dead.
0: Well, that's one of the most tragic memories I have from that day is people lined up. all all around the city, uh, waiting for ambulances. And the ambulances never came.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I went, after a while, I realized there's nothing else for me to do except go home and be with my family. And I went back to the same garage where I parked my car seven hours before. It was about 3.30 in the afternoon. I got in my car, drove north, got on the George Washington Bridge. And I remember- You You were able to get on the George Washington Bridge that afternoon? That all the traffic was going outbound. Nothing, nothing was coming inbound. And I remember, I think I remember uh, guard troops on the bridge. And it occurred to me as I was driving across the bridge that what started off as a serene, beautiful day is now a war zone. I felt like we were in a war zone. That's, that it had the feeling of a war zone that, that afternoon as I drove home. And, how, and how, how late was it when you got home? Um it wasn't a whole lot of traffic outbound. It was eerily calm, as I recall, on, this, on, the, on, on the Garden State Parkway, on I-80. and But the world had changed uh, in just a few hours. And the thing, and I'll come back to this in a moment, the thing that I remember about time is that time that day seemed to move very, very slow. Even though it was only mid-afternoon by the time I left my office and went home, it felt like it had been a week, given all that had happened.
0: There are two things I remember from that day that made me feel a little calmer, because there's lots of things going on, including, obviously, you must have been feeling this too, what's next? And and it kept coming, right? You have the one plane hitting the one tower, another plane hitting another tower, then you had the plane hitting the Pentagon, and there were rumors flying around. I remember being on the street, as oh, I yeah. mentioned, and there were crowds of people saying that the, that the Capitol had been hit or that there was a bomb, you know, uptown. Yes. Uh, I remember going to bed that night, and there were rumors swirling around that seemed credible. Why not? That the Empire State Building was a target and would, and would be exploding. And I remember thinking, I don't live that many blocks from the, from the Empire State Building. Will that engulf us? So, so there's a lot of fear going on at the same time. And, and the things that I remember are number one, seeing a graphic on television that showed every single airplane in the United States of America was grounded, which, which pleased me at, at that time. And then second, I'll never forget the feeling I had. I was outside briefly and I, I saw and heard American fighter planes over Manhattan. Right, right. And that made me feel better too. Are there moments like that, that, that during the day made you feel safer?
1: I remember the fighter planes, and I remember the shock of looking up in the sky and seeing fighter jets of the United States Air Force patrolling the Conus, the homeland. It was one of those things that you, before that moment, could never get your head around, like watching the collapse of the of the towers. And um, I'll just—it was a day I'll never forget.
0: What emotions? did you feel the, the most as, as between anger, grief, fear, uh, and whatever other,
1: whatever other things you were feeling at the time? Because I remember lurching between those three. I think the emotion I felt the most, and I felt a lot of emotions, obviously, shock, grief, fear for what was coming next. By the way, one constant after a terrorist attack is that in the early moments after the attack, as you just pointed out, there's lots of misinformation flying around, Yeah, uh, lots of false facts flying around. And so one has to be careful in reporting them or trying to assess them. Um, but I have to say, and this could be just my own recreation of my emotions, but I think my recollection is my overriding emotion was, I, I want to get in this fight. I feel like I should be in this fight. I should be back in national security. That was what I felt that day, as I recall.
0: You know, for people like you and me, who were not only alive and adults at the time, but, but on the island of Manhattan when it happened and had connections to law enforcement and were going to be part of this subsequent 20-year you know, thing that we had to deal with in our different ways, it, it's bizarre to me that not only in my own house with my young children, I had a daughter who was four months at the time, uh, some of the members of the cafe team, our crack team, who are on this Zoom right now and and listening into the conversation between you and me, were quite quite young back then, and I wonder if and when you talk to young people who don't have any personal memory of the event, what you try to convey to them, and and how it's possible for young listeners who are tuning into this program to, to convey to them how monumental a day it was, and and what. They should be thinking about it, not having witnessed it themselves.
1: That's a good question. The first thing that comes to mind when you say that, my son was almost seven years old that day. My daughter was five going on six. And we wondered how much of that day they had understood and absorbed. They were just at an age when you're on the cusp between being oblivious versus taking on the grief. And I'll never forget a couple weeks later, my son brought home a picture he had drawn at school of the Twin Towers with, a, with an airplane flying into it. And he wrote as a caption, a sad picture. And I think he had an American flag in it. And my son today wears the uniform of our nation. So kids at that age, I think, absorbed a lot more than we probably realize. If you have a a child or no someone in their late 20s now, they probably absorb more than we appreciate. Um, in talking to people now, and it's amazing, you know, I work at a law firm or some of our summer associates at this law firm who were between their second and third year of law school who were 24, 25 at the time, may not have any recollection of 9 or college students. Most college students were not born on 9-11 And the thing that I try to convey is I have a vivid recollection of events. If they're interested, I'll recount the events, but that 9-11 changed our nation and changed our world in ways that 20 years later, we still have not fully comprehended or appreciated.
0: Did you, when you saw the gaping hole in the tower and then the towers came down, did you, based on your most recent government service, understand who had done it before most Americans did?
1: Um, When I was general counsel of the Air Force, 1998, 99, 2000, 2000, we would hear almost daily about al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. So I knew full well who they were, what their aims were, and what they represented. I was not surprised to learn within a short period of time, that it was Al-Qaeda that was responsible. Frankly, I was surprised that our intelligence community apparently had a fairly clear picture of the plot and the threat to our homeland. Uh, and we learned this after the after the events. Um, but no, I was not surprised. And I, I think we all knew that bin Laden was was actively hoping and planning to do something to attack the United States and had
0: you know your office, my old office, our old offices is our um, former home in the Southern district of New York, literally that year had tried cases against uh, members of al Qaeda who had blown up two American embassies in Africa. Uh, and in fact, I used to do this when I when I would talk to young people sometimes for career day at my old high school. I would bring a copy of the indictment. And the indictment begins with the United States versus Osama bin Laden, spelled U-S-A-M-A. So, were you a U.S. attorney in 2011?
1: You were, right? I was, yeah, I was. Yes, I was involved in the dismissal of the indictment against bin Laden. I can't remember whether I told you that story or not, but we can get into that later.
0: Well, we can talk about it for a second because you mentioned it. You must have been involved because my recollection is, as people may remember, just to refresh other people's recollection, there was supposed to be a trial yeah. of KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and others who were housed at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. That became a political firestorm. In fact, the first major assignment I got weeks into being confirmed on, uh, on August 13th, after August 13th of 2009, was your team is going to try KSM and four others. And then, of course, the indictment, of Osama bin Laden had never been dismissed because he was alive. And then after he, uh, he died in, in 2011, he was killed by American forces you you move for a standard death nolly, what's called a death nolly. And you know, usually it's a mat, it's a rote matter, and in some circumstances you attach the death certificate. Judge Kaplan, uh, maybe this is why you got involved. Judge Kaplan's a great judge. Partner. Your former yes. law partner at Paul Weiss uh, said that was insufficient that upon our say-so, Osama bin Laden was dead, because people will recall his body was put out to sea, he was buried at sea, and he wanted more proof. And so we had to get, maybe this is how you got involved. We had to get a sworn declaration from someone, I believe, in the military or the intelligence community to opine on the DNA taken from the person who was killed by the American forces and the DNA they understood to be belonging to Osama bin Laden. And only after that submission was made was the case against Osama bin Laden dismissed. Does that sound right?
1: Okay, so we're— <clears throat> We're zooming ahead 10 years to something that, from my perspective, is is halfway humorous. Um, so, the bin Laden operation was May 1, 2011, probably about a month later on a Friday. And stuff at the Pentagon always happens on Friday afternoons. I don't know why, but there's this massive upchuck of things that have to get done on Friday afternoon that I only hear about on Friday afternoons. And so, I remember getting an email from Uh, somebody was unclass from somebody in the CIA. Uh, And it was one of these emails, the tone of it was don't shoot the messenger. Uh, But the email read in so many words, the judge overseeing the bin Laden case wants proof of death before he will dismiss the indictment. (laughs) Right. Uh, Don't shoot me. But the Department of Justice Meaning you, Preet Bharara, (laughs) your your office, uh, gave the judge the impression that they will have that proof this afternoon, today, this afternoon. And the judge wants some form of declaration or some proof that bin Laden is actually dead. So I read that and I thought, okay, I I know what I I think I know what Judge Kaplan wants. He wants to see the photographs, but we're not going to be able to get him the photographs right away. The photographs are under lock and key. And I remember my reply email. My reply email began, you must be kidding. <laughs> uh, can't the judge take judicial notice of a nationally televised address by the president of the United States that bin Laden is dead? And if that's not good enough, what about the cover of the New York Post? Wasn't that <laughs> Okay. Wasn't good bin enough Laden for dead. your former law. Partner. Uh, but then I went on to say, I have a better idea. Let's do nothing and see what happens. Is he going to set a trial date? Is he going to insist that the government go to trial? Is the defense attorney pressing for a speedy <laughs> trial here? Right. If so, I hope he got his retainer up front. I, of I, course, so, there was it, no counsel for Bin Laden at the time. So we, I think we, we ultimately delivered to Judge Kaplan what he wanted. But my weak recollection of the rules was that the government didn't need an explanation and proof to drop its own indictment against a criminal defendant. I guess, I guess I well,
0: was wrong. You know, this leads me to the question of you know. With respect to who has relatively more power, you and and Lou Kaplan, both alumni of prestigious law firm Paul Weiss, who had more power, you when you were the Secretary of Homeland Security or a life tenured federal judge in the Southern District of New York? Open question. <laughs>
1: well, there might be might get different answers depending upon where you sit. <laughs> and it depends this was on at the time when I was General Counsel of DOD, where I thought I you know carried some weight, but apparently you know judges want you to do it on their timetable. So th- th-
0: this is a good segue. I think, to one of the other issues I wanted to talk about, which is our security, our security then, our security now. As you and I have just discussed, Osama bin Laden may not have been a household name in America or in the world on 9-11-2001, but he was certainly known to the intelligence community, to the military, to the National Security Council. And then, of course, the commission showed all sorts of other signs that maybe the government should have acted upon. Is it your view after 20 years given all the positions you've held and a chance to think about this, was 9-11 avoidable?
1: You know, um, I've been in the situation room enough. I've been in the hot seat enough that I know that unless I was in the chair at the time, I'm not going to sit in judgment of those who were. I'm not going to say, yes, it was knowable. Uh, unless I was there at the time and I remember what I knew and I remember what I thought and I remember what I was told. So I'm reluctant to sit in judgment of those who were in the jobs on 9-11 or in the days immediately preceding. I do know this. I think that given today's capabilities, given the capabilities that existed while I was in office at the Department of Defense and at DHS... I believe that a large-scale plot such as that one involving as many individuals as it did would be detectable and preventable given today's capabilities. I can say that with a fair degree of confidence. Interesting footnote to this, I was not a fan of the creation of the DNI, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence right after 9-11, the creation of it right after is one of the 9-11 recommendations, as I recall, because I thought it would create an unnecessary layer of bureaucracy in our intelligence community. But having been a consumer of that work product now for, for close to eight years, I can say that the DNI structure, if you have a good DNI at the top, actually does work and it works well. You'll get a whole composite of intelligence products from the alphabet soup in the intelligence community. Somebody will, it's almost like an appellate court. Somebody will issue a majority opinion. Somebody may dissent with a minority view. And when I got that, when I was secretary of Homeland Security, I used to summon the analyst up to my office with the dissenter to say, okay, why do you two guys disagree Tell me where the disagreement lies and why do you disagree? And very often you find out there was not that big a disagreement, but there was strength and rigor in that process. And that's why I can say, with some degree of confidence, that had such a large scale plot occurred or was in the works, given today's capabilities, I believe that we could prevent it and stop it at its earliest stages. <laughs>
0: We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Jay Johnson after this.
3: Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO, Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens. With all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
0: Here's the question that I've had every day since 9-11. And I've asked a lot of people, maybe you and I even discussed this last time. And that is, terrorism is a certain kind of activity, which by definition is intended to strike fear in the hearts of, of a population. And that was successful, given the spectacular nature of the attack on, on 9-11, on the World Trade Center, and also on the Pentagon. And I kept thinking every day I walked around the city with the smoke billowing for months and months and the, and the scent of the disaster in people's nostrils for months and months after the attack. Every time I heard a loud noise uh, or there was breaking news, I worried it was another attack. Yeah. And it takes some doing. And obviously America was on high alert and everyone in the world was on a high alert after 9-11. And I I, I understand why there may not have been the wherewithal, particularly with the wars that began, for Al-Qaeda or another terrorist organization to launch a gigantic attack of the nature of 9-11. What I've never understood is, and this is a a good thing, and I'm glad it unfolded this way. What I've never understood is is why one of these terrorist organizations, Al-Qaeda among them, how was New York City and the rest of the country for that matter spared small attacks, small shootings, you know, a little bomb on a subway? That, you know, I I think people in New York would not have sent their children to school People wouldn't have gone out onto the streets. And I'm so thankful. And I think we're so blessed that we didn't have a follow-on of small attacks after the gargantuan attack. But as an American, as as a New Yorker, I think that would have brought the city to its knees. How come that didn't happen?
1: Great, you've touched upon something that I don't even like to talk about. And I would not have while I was in office. The lack of successful small-scale series of small-scale attacks by suicide bombers with backpacks or vests or pressure cooker bombs in suitcases detonating on a New York City subway in a tunnel in a bus station has been A minor miracle, the lack of such attacks. Now, you and I both know there were a few, there were a few attempts. There were the pressure cooker bombs, September of 2016, West 23rd Street, West 27th, I think. There was an attempt by someone in the Times Square subway station a couple years ago when I was a private citizen. It happened uh, right at the time of day and in the place of my daily commute. Um, But you and I both know how difficult it would be to prevent a deranged individual who radicalizes in their garage or in their basement, straps on a lot of explosives, gets on a subway where nobody's noticing, nobody's paying attention, and just decides to blow himself up. That type of attempt, unless you have really, really good human, unless you have really, really good human intelligence, undercover work. By the FBI and the NYPD is very, very difficult to prevent. And why we did not see that uh, in the immediate afterna- aftermath of 9 11, um, I give credit to the incredible capabilities of our NYPD intelligence capabilities, our FBI, and I think a certain amount of good luck as well and good fortune. My big fear, you talked about fear after 9-11. My big fear in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 was anthrax. Because you recall, we, we, we had anthrax cases popping up in random places throughout the city. And my fear was that it's one of these things where you don't know how far it's going to spread. Do I need to not open my U.S. mail anymore? Do I need to evacuate my kids from my house every time the mail comes in? Because you don't know how far it's going to reach. One thing I found... Frankly, that was not helpful in the immediate aftermath of 9/11. You know, our government very often they're caught flat-footed on something, and they overcompensate. And so I remember these dire warnings right after 9/11 from Cheney, Rumsfeld, and some others. There's going to be another attack. It's going to be as big as 9/11. Yeah. It's going to be another attack, and or, or something. They qualified it a little bit, I'm sure, but in my view. From my homeland security perspective, when I was secretary, there's not a whole lot of good to be done in just scaring people unless you also say what you are doing about it to prevent it and give people some hope and confidence. But scaring people just for the sake of scaring people, just so you can say, I told you so, is not particularly helpful.
0: So you mentioned Dick Cheney. I didn't. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you was what are the ways in which uh, America— both in terms of how it applied its laws, how it changed its focus, how it used its intelligence capabilities, in what ways did we do a good thing, and in what ways did we do a bad thing. And since you mentioned Cheney, I'm going to start with the negative. And people will recall these debates that have faded a little bit from from view in in very recent years. But the famous torture memos that circulated that authorized waterboarding and, and other activities, the use of black sites and everything else, it's been a while since people have talked about some of those things. Do you think it was inevitable that the pendulum would swing that aggressively, given the nature and scale of the attack? Or could we have done better?
1: Yes, regrettably, I believe it was inevitable. And yes, I believe we could have done better. I like to say to people those who know history learn from the lessons of history, those who don't know history, are bound to repeat the mistakes of history. America, for, for several years after 9-11, was in shock. We were in trauma. In many respects, we overreacted. You could never have gotten a Congress to authorize the Iraq War had, there, had it not been in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, for example, I believe that we improved our intelligence capabilities. We improved the structure of our intelligence collection capabilities in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. We can talk about the creation of DHS, the Department of Homeland Security. I think that was a long overdue step, effectively creating a Department of the Interior like other governments have in other nations. But in many respects, we, we did overreact. Um, We're having this debate now with the end of the Afghanistan war. What did we accomplish there? And the whole Iraq war uh, was fought on the notion that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. And in the mood in the climate and the atmosphere that existed at the time, a lot of politicians and a lot of Americans were prepared to accept that assumption going into Iraq. And not enough of us viewed it with some skepticism. Now, I will say this, the Bush administration legally overstepped in a number of places, largely because they were working on a blank legal pad, so to speak. By the time we in the Obama administration came in in 2009, a lot of the rules for fighting this kind of war had already been crafted because we as a government had learned where the boundary lines were, the Supreme Court told us in some certain places where the boundary lines were. And so we, by 2009, had some legal lanes in which we knew we could operate and tried to do so wisely. But in the immediate aftermath of 9 11, the Bush folks um, were working on a blank sheet of paper in an environment where there was a lot of anxiety about what was going to happen next, a lot of concern, a lot of fear. And that is a poor environment in which to make policy and make a new set of rules. Yeah, you had, you
0: had a dramatic, large-scale attack. You didn't know if other attacks were coming. It was a young presidency, a president in his first term, and it was also populated by people who, terror attack or no, came into the administration and grew up in their minds with a pretty aggressive view about, exec, about executive authority and about where the proper balance between liberty and security should be. And that was before the 9-11 attacks. So, you know, maybe a perfect storm in that combination of forces and events. But, but a question, I, I wonder how you react to this. Do you think that, that the folks who were the architects of some of these policies were acting in good faith? Not, I'm not asking, were they, were they being careful lawyers Uh, and maybe this answers the question, I'm asking, do you think that they did what they thought was best for the country, even if it's the case that we all, I think many then, and and certainly many more now,
1: realize that they went too far? Two-part answer. One, I don't believe anyone in the Bush administration was acting with a corrupt motive, if that's your question. I believe that many were acting in what they believed was the best interest of the country at the moment. I also believe that there were some who had an underlying agenda and like taking out Saddam Hussein and concluded that the climate was ripe for doing so, whereas the year before would not have been. So I believe that there was some taking advantage of the anxiety of the moment. From a legal point of view, Preet, one of the things I noticed when I came into office as the senior legal official for the Department of Defense in 2009, the question we always asked and the question Barack Obama wanted us to ask is what is the legal authority for doing something? I noticed that lawyers who had also functioned as lawyers in the Bush years, would frame the question the exact opposite way, which is, what is there that prevents me from doing something that I want to do? And I would say that's the wrong question. We need to ask, is there legal authority for doing something? International legal authority, domestic legal authority. We shouldn't just be asking yourself, is there anything that would stop me from doing this? Because that will lead to abuse. If you start from the point of view of, is there anything that prohibits me from doing it? You're going to end up getting slapped down. And in the early years after 9-11, that's exactly what happened. I'll tell you one of the
0: things that from time to time would scare me during the presidency of Donald Trump. And it was, you know, an echo of what we're talking about now. Suppose there is a large scale 9-11 style attack during the Trump presidency. Obviously, that would be terrible for, you know, all the inherent reasons for that loss of life. And then I thought to myself, well, what would the reaction of the Trump administration be, given that in retrospect, there's a you know, you know, some consensus that the Bush administration went too far? What, what would it mean for immigration policy? What would it mean for law enforcement authority? What would it mean for relationships with our allies? What would it mean also for Muslim communities in our country, assuming it was you know, from an organization like Al Qaeda or, or something else? What would that have looked like? And, and if there is a future massive attack on the homeland, what do you think it would look like under a Biden administration?
1: Well, in answer to your first question, I, I fear that the reaction would have been an off-the-charts, unfathomable reaction for people like you and me um, in such a climate, and such an atmosphere. I can't begin to contemplate. Don't forget, it was in 2017 16 years after 9-11 when we had smaller scale attacks you know what we refer to as terrorist inspired attacks here in the U.S. that President Trump was able to mobilize at least some support for his so-called travel ban and that in 2015 when he first proposed barring Muslims from entering the United States there are a lot of people that supported that Uh, a lot of us were highly offended it. But there were a lot of people, there was a considerable amount of support. And the person who proposed that idea got elected president of the United States. So let's not forget that. Um, The lawyers in the Biden administration, I know many of them because I worked with them. There's almost nobody who works in the Biden administration who didn't work in the Obama administration. And so I think I know how they think. I believe that the legal thinking where there a crisis today would hopefully be similar to the legal thinking that went on during the obama years and what i used to try to do was apply traditional legal principles to a non-traditional unconventional situation and that that would have the most credibility in terms of our efforts so apply traditional law of armed conflict principles to an untraditional enemy law of war detention for example, at Guantanamo Bay, there was a the military commission system, and I know you're not a fan of it, and we could talk more about that.
0: <laughs> I'm not, not a fan. Uh, um, I get I get w- it. I had a different, you know, I, I worked in SDNY and you were with the Department of Defense,
1: and so that we had different views on the best way for there to be justice. By the way, I was in favor, as you may recall, of moving the KSM case, the 9/11 defendants to the Southern District of New York. Yeah,
0: so let's can we talk turkey about that for a second because it's a yeah. sensitive topic at the time and I as US attorney did not speak about it much and basically kept my, you know, my face out of it but you know there were debates that I participated in as the new US attorney down with the Attorney General Eric Holder and others you know time and time again in the fall of 2009 where we made the argument for civilian, you know, in the Southern District of New York court trial for KSM and the co-defendants. In fact, it was so certain after the the attorney general made the decision to send the case to us, I got a tour of the Metropolitan Correctional Center that Eric Holder came up for, the chief judge uh, attended, the United States marshal attended, and the warden to show us the cell in the MCC, in the Metropolitan Correctional Center, that KSM would have occupied as we expected the trial to commence in some months. How come that never happened? So
1: let's go back to the Bush to Obama transition, 2008, 2009. Congress had passed the military commissions of 2006 in response to the Supreme Court decision, saying this needs to be codified into law. I was impressed by the fact that our JAG leadership, the military lawyers, the military prosecutors were offended by aspects of the Military Commission's Act of 2006, the possibility that one could use against a defendant in that system, statements taken as the result of cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment. The Jags were very offended by that. They felt that it impugned the integrity of their military justice system. They wanted reform. And they convinced me that with a reformed military commission system, we could make it work. And we worked with Congress in 2009. We got the law changed. President Obama agreed to use the military commission system for certain cases. And we would divvy up the cases, which we did. We went through a process. I went through the process with David Chris, who was the assistant AG for national security. And we divided up the cases. I believed, I agreed, that the 9-11 case should come to New York, right here in Manhattan. As a New Yorker. As a former assistant from the Southern District, and because I knew the principal victims were all civilian, this case should be tried in federal district court in Manhattan. And I was prepared to see that case go to Manhattan. The Nashiri case, the coal bomber in Yemen, I believed should be prosecuted in the military commission system. And those were the two big cases at the time. And the decision was, in fact, made. It was left to the the attorney general. We agreed. And, and then it, un- it unraveled. And it unraveled because of political forces. Frankly, I don't think we adequately prepared the battle space for the announcement. Uh, we did not adequately vet it with the mayor, with the congressional delegation up here. Uh, well, I think, I think a couple
0: of things happened also. But people tend to forget. And the the, the so that underwear decision, bomber
1: and just, there was a Yeah, whole no, that's exactly, I was, yeah. so
0: the decision was made, I think, in the second week of November, I got the call from Attorney General Holder announcing his decision.
1: November 13th, 20, November thirteenth, two 2009, I remember
0: it, yes. Exactly right. Um, Friday, November 13th. It was the most momentous
1: call I had Remember what I said, stuff happens on Fridays. <laughs>
0: stuff happens on Fridays. Right. And it was only six weeks later that you had the underwear bomber flying into Detroit and the whole upsetness that people had about his being read as Miranda rights. And, and I think, thinking back on it now, I think that just changed the dynamic and it caused people in New York City. Look, look, my understanding from the mayor at the time of the announcement, meaning on or about November 13th, and from the police commissioner at the time, Ray Kelly, and I don't know that I've said this publicly before, but they were fine with it. They were fine with it in communications that I had. They made no fuss about it. Ray Kelly, uh, you know, in, in, in typical fashion, kind of shrugs said, we're in New York, we can handle anything. And then things changed, I think, where some other politicians came out against and tried to foment some discord. And then you had the underwear bomber. And we hadn't moved quickly enough as a government to get it going. And so it allowed time for opposition from people like
1: Lindsey Graham and others to build. Pre- yeah, you, you, you were a prosecutor. You were not supposed to think about politics. I did. But I welcome but... to welcome to the political world. It's yeah. fine until it's not fine. Yeah. And no politician or anyone who thinks like a politician is going to say, well, I'm going along with this decision because I told the U.S. attorney earlier I was going to go along with the decision. It's fine until it's not fine. And the political forces, the climate, the New York Post, you know, whoever, were um, all against it. And it created an insurmountable barrier. And as you'll recall, there was essentially a stalemate for a year before the attorney general finally said, "Okay, um, I agree to send this case back to Guantanamo, which was unfortunate. And there's still there's still no trial. Here we are uh, 12 years later, 12 years later and still no trial. And you and I can speculate about what's what's going to happen to that case if there's ever a conviction and an appeal, but I mean, I have to say I'm disappointed that there have been so many single points of failure in the commission system. And had I the virtue of a crystal ball 12 years ago, I might've thought differently about trying to salvage that system. Meanwhile, everybody prosecuted in federal civilian court has long since been convicted and is well underway in their, in their prison sentence.
0: The track record speaks for itself. Ballpark figure, how many fights about this did you have with Rahm
1: Emanuel? Uh, No, Rahm Emanuel was not my, Rahm Emanuel was, I I think it's fair to say he and I were of like mind. Um, The principal argument and the situation room at the White House occurred between me and Greg Craig, who was then the White House counsel, who was against the commission system. I don't want to, characterize his view but i will uh and i was the chief proponent of that commission system at the time
0: right I but, but now it. when i was talking about the specific decision to use that system or not with respect to ksm because my understanding about that was that rama Emanuel was
1: was very very opposed that i do not know that i cannot say i don't know that for a fact i know that i know that greg was and m- maybe it's a few others around the table certainly the attorney general eric was You know, one of the things that's easy to forget when you're a lawyer in government, you have a client. My client was the Department of Defense, and I was advocating the position of my client. We believed that we could prosecute these guys safely and effectively in a military commission system in accord with traditional law of war, wartime principles. And, um, you know, the facts speak for themselves, as you said. I don't have the benefit of a crystal ball. If I did, I'd be a multi-billionaire because I'd be a whiz <laughs> in the stock market. So, You're not already? But I, I But I remembered, like so many other decisions in national security, I remembered what I thought at the time and what I believed at the time in 2009 that led me to the position that I advocated. Given where we
0: were at 9-11 and how the country has evolved and convulsed and had all sorts of internal battles, not just about... Policies, but also about our values. Do you think that the, our country is more in tune with its values today than it was right after 9 11?
1: You know, you've asked me a question that I'm not going to be optimistic about, unfortunately. I have to say this before I answer that, though 9 11 2001 was my darkest day as an American, and I'm sure others feel the same way. My best day as a public servant was May 1, 2011, the day we got Bin Laden. Like a lot of people, I felt closure about that day. And you asked me about my recollections of 9-11. The one thing that May 1, 2011 and September 11, 2001 had in common for me was time moved very slowly, moment by moment, waiting, watching and listening to that operation in Pakistan unfold as I sat in the basement of the Pentagon, time moved very slowly, and I walked away with a feeling of closure as a New Yorker and an American that day. Uh, Preet, I have to say this about today's climate. The threats to our homeland have evolved significantly. We have, through multiple administrations, through our aggressive counterterrorism efforts, degraded Al-Qaeda's ability to launch another large-scale attack on our homeland, like a 9-11. We've done a significant amount to degrade the capabilities of the Islamic State, though there is a resurgence, obviously, with ISIS-K. The threats to our homeland today, global warming. If you ask me the top three security threats to our homeland today, I'd say global warming, global warming, global warming, and the impact of severe weather events on aging infrastructure. Number two, cyber attacks, all forms of cyber attacks. You and I are well acquainted with those. Right up there, alongside those threats and the threat of terrorism is the threat presented to our nation by a polarized, paralyzed democracy. We are a very polarized nation right now, such that if there were another 9-11, I have doubt that we could marshal a national response like we did 20 years ago. And for proof of that, you don't need to look any further than COVID. Look at how we've responded to COVID over the last 15, 16 months. Which is a nonpartisan foe. It's a nonpartisan foe. And the vaccine, the solution to the nonpartisan foe is nonpartisan. Yet, Our attitudes about COVID and how to cure ourselves of it have broken down along partisan lines. You have Americans who believe that the vaccine, in the face of all the science, in the face of all the messaging from the government, who believe that the vaccine is dangerous and they'd rather take a treatment used to deworm cattle and horses as somehow more effective. And... It didn't have to be this bad, but our attitudes have broken down along sharply partisan lines, such that in the face of another national crisis requiring a national response, I worry that we could not effectively deal with that now. And that, in and of itself, is a security threat. The polarization of our democracy, in and of itself, is one of our major security challenges today. Remember, Preet, all the flags that came out after 9-11, all the young Americans who enlisted in our military after 9-11, and the sense of national unity that existed in the immediate aftermath. We have been unable to marshal a similar response in the face of a lethal, pandemic that has touched every corner of america and killed hundreds of thousands of americans multiples of the number that were killed on 9-11 and that worries me a lot perhaps more than any other challenge to our nation today well on that optimistic note secretary johnson
0: well
1: (laughs) thanks (laughs) we, we could we could talk about you know ways and try to well I'll on say that, I'll say an that. optimistic that's, thing yeah that's my concern today but the
0: fact that you and hopefully I and others have diagnosed this problem and talk about it and spend their time professionally and their interstitial time trying to be educated about these things and talk to other folks about the, these things and encourage them to put you know the country above their party that all of those efforts matter and they're put to good use and so you know, I, I think the pendulum, I, I think and trust based on the last election is swinging back, but there's a lot of work to do. And luckily you're around to do some of it too. And by the way, happy
1: birthday. Well, thank you. You know, um, you're, I don't think you're there yet, but pre- life begins at 60. <laughs> I am not there yet. <laughs> I am not there
0: yet. Thanks again for your service. And thanks again for spending time. I enjoyed our discussion. Thanks a lot. Invite me back. I will. My conversation with Jay Johnson continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. I want to end the show this week with just another word about the 20th anniversary of 9-11 as it approaches. I've been thinking about it a lot. I've been remembering a lot. Maybe you have been too. I find that my recollections are not a coherent narrative. My emotions then, and now, are all over the place. It was not a coherent day, after all. I remember after the towers fell, looking at my four-month-old daughter and wondering what kind of world had we brought her into. I think of how my brother asked if he could come over that morning and sit with us because he just wanted to be with family. I think of what I saw. Smoke, and flames, and planes, and the falling man. I think of what I felt. Anger, and fear, and grief. I don't pray so much, but I prayed that day. I remember that night, with all air traffic grounded, amid rumors of undetonated bombs, we put our daughter to bed. I would sing to her every night at bedtime. But that night, I added a new song to the rotation, God Bless America. I think I sang it more for me than for her. That song remained in the rotation at night, even after our second child was born, and then our third. I remember the following days, too. I remember being at SDNY, and Detective Kenny Robbins walks into my office to talk about a case. He's a plainclothes detective, but he's in uniform that day. I ask him why. He says, I've got two funerals today. I saw him wear his uniform a lot, and your heart just breaks. I remember going to a makeshift center in Chelsea some weeks after the attack to volunteer to help victims' families who might need legal or other help. And I'm looking for where I'm supposed to go. I round a corner, and I come face to face with a huge wall. On the wall are hundreds of drawings. They're in crayon, and they are from young children all over the country, sending their thanks and good wishes to the families of the firefighters who died. Some are drawn as angels in heaven. And my God, your heart just breaks. Like Secretary Johnson, I too changed after 9-11. I felt an overpowering duty to my country to serve however I could and to serve as long as I could. I ended up doing another 16 years. I remember almost eight years after the attacks, being sworn in as U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, and receiving, within weeks, my first major assignment, oversee the trial of five men who masterminded the attack in America on September 11th. That never came to pass, but we were ready. I remember feeling a great heaviness as the 10th anniversary of 9-11 approached back in 2011, and I feel that heaviness today. I remember going to the opening of the 9-11 Memorial that morning, the first time the public was allowed in that hallowed space. The 10th anniversary happened to be a Sunday. I am not much of a church or temple goer, but I went to church that day with my deputy and best friend Boyd Johnson. I just felt I needed to be in a house of worship. We commemorated the 10th anniversary with an event at the court of international trade, one place where all the lawyers and staff could fit. I remember struggling to find the words to fit the occasion. I decided to speak of service and the enduring force of good people. Ten years later, I hope the message still rings true. This is what I said. I respectfully submit that the lessons of 9-11 boil down to a few simple and timeless truths. There is evil in the world, but there is also good. There is cowardice in the world, but also courage. There is terrible tragedy, but also hope. Sometimes, a world-altering tragedy is thrust upon us, epic in scale and suffering, and made more shocking because it is wrought not by nature, but by wicked men. That is when good people announce themselves with great force and in great number. That is when good people, even knowing they can never fully console the grieving or calculate the loss, or even comprehend the act, dedicate themselves simply and tirelessly to healing the harmed, fighting for justice, and rebuilding their city. That is when good people make a commitment lasting not merely for a moment or a day or a year, but for as long as they have breath, to dismiss the differences among them and awaken to what is important. It is a commitment to living life in the service not just of oneself, but also for the benefit of other people. It is a commitment to carry whatever load one's limbs can bear and make whatever sacrifice one's spirit can tolerate to, in the words of Aeschylus, tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. There were many, many heroes on 9-11 and after. We have been reminded of some of their stories this week. But whoever makes that commitment, whoever holds to that pledge, even if you never had the chance to be one of the heroes who pulled a victim from the burning towers or rescued a fellow soldier on the field of battle or saved countless countrymen by choosing to crash your own plane in a field in Pennsylvania, whoever makes that commitment to service makes a contribution to the ultimate cause of peace and justice. Because through each of those private pledges to do one's part, to ease some suffering, and to at least respect, if not love, your fellow human beings, interwoven between millions of other like pledges made by people of every color, class, and faith, is stitched the fabric of a heroic nation. That is the simple creed of good and justice-loving people everywhere. And it is the defining creed of the men and women of this office. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Jay Johnson. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669 24 Preet. Or you can send an email to stay tuned at Cafe.com. Stay tuned is presented by Cafe Studios and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tatashor. The Cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Curlander, Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azalai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Chris Boylan and Sean Walsh. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Barara. Stay tuned.
3: More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier.